Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to our second chat with musician and poet Steve Scott. On this episode, Mr. Scott delves into his early days of his conversion, the cultural changes occurring both in the mainstream British culture and the church at large during the 60s and 70s, and many of the individuals he got to witness bloom in the middle of all of that. Mr. Scott also explains how all of this informs his approach to art and faith. A few episodes ago, I had John Thompson on from TrueTunes.com, and he briefly mentioned uh, your days in England, I guess you're British-born, and how you were part of, maybe not an official collective, but a, a part of a group of folks that were trying to engage the world with the current art of the time, or the current sounds even. Can you talk about those days and how did they form? Was it on purpose or what, did it just kind of congeal together? Or Here's the deal. I left high school, converted to the Christian faith, and started art school in the late 1960s. Stepping into the art school experience during the late 1960s in Britain was a to say the least, a bit of a trip, because we had this underground music scene, we had mixed media arts laboratories, people were extolling the virtues or promoting the virtues of psychotropics and LSD-25 and mushrooms and mescaline. And there was everything from anarchism to the extreme left through to the kind of a hippie utopia all this stuff was blowing up and impacting the world of the arts as well or at least to say that if you were in art school you were pretty much on the edge of what was coming down in terms of popular culture and here i was you know a baby christian uh going to a small evangelical free church trying to make sense of all this and grow as a Christian believer and try and connect with and engage with my contemporaries. And here's where I'm going to be speaking from ignorance. I'm going to say at a superficial level, the popular church culture, at least at the evangelical end of things, did not seem to meaningfully connect with or engage with the cultural, what was going on all around it. I mean, you had Christian beat groups and people trying to do folk music. And I have differing opinions about about those kinds of phenomena, which are, you know, it's a whole rabbit trail. But at, at least at a superficial level, in my own ignorance, I was not immediately aware of meaningful connection with the culture at large. It was very much a step away from the culture 
and kind of flourish vertically as a Christian. And I'm speaking out of ignorance and I'm speaking out of lack of awareness on my part of the work that was being done by people like Harry Blamires and other writers that actually were seeking to connect with and engage the culture of the time in Christ-honoring terms. I was I was just not aware of that stuff. I was just like this, this kid surrounded by hippies and going to a church where everything, as I understood it, was very vertical, by which I mean uh, not at this church per se. I'm describing a Christian subculture generally. There'd be an emphasis on A.W. Tozer, Watchman Nee, vertical approaches to becoming more spiritual. An aspect of spirituality would be a, a stepping away from or putting distance between yourself and what was going on culturally. Now, there were people in my church that I recall and I discovered later, and I, I think this is important, who were thinking I mean, I th they probably all were, but I'm aware of people because I had conversations with them and they introduced resources to me who were doing deeper thinking about art, life, death, the universe and culture. I mean, there was one guy who went off to Switzerland to this place called Labrie and came back talking about this Francis Schaeffer guy and this Hans Ruckmacher guy. Uh, and this was like at the end of the 60s. So that was one kind of beginning of a cultural input that I was receiving. Another was about six weeks after I'd made a conscious, I'd said to people, yes, I've become a Christian. I and a friend from the church went into London and we went to what would be called a, like an art house or an independent cinema. And we saw a film called The Gospel According to Matthew by an Italian director named Piero Pasolini. So I'm six weeks into the faith and I'm looking at Piero Pasolini's Gospel According to Matthew, which, as you may or may not know, was shot with amateur actors, shot in black and white, with a soundtrack of everything from choirs to black gospel music. I mean, the genre, I believe, is referred to as neorealist style. But I'm, I'm sitting through this, it's riveting. Signore, se tu vuoi mi puoi mandare. Lo voglio, si mandate. It's riveting in terms of how do we push the limitations of the medium in a way that it incarnates its message. Pasolini did it. And I thought, so this is what Christian art looks like. This is great. I'm up for a great time. Also, in that same year, a film put out by an evangelistic organization that I'm not going to name out of respect for its founder, put out a film called Flipside uh, that was meant to be a no-holds-barred take on the counterculture of the time. And that film, Flipside's claim to fame, was a graphic vomiting sequence by a hippie that had taken drugs. So I'm, I'm presented with these two somewhat incongruous models of engagement, and they both think they are relevant. But in Pasolini's case, it actually was.
if that makes sense. Okay, so back to the story. The story I told you about getting on the Beijing subway and getting lost was intended as a warning <laughs> because this is pretty much my MO. Anyway, <laughs> I was growing, trying to grow as a Christian believer in this small church, and we had good connections. Uh, we would listen to speakers. There were people that were involved with an organization called Youth for Christ. And I remember some of the people, Phil Vogel, Doug Barnett, and other names. And these, these guys were, were, were great guys. You know, they, they were engaging and informative in the way that they reached out um, in both Christ-honoring and, you know, contextually relevant ways in what they had to say. And that was good. And so we, we, we were on the fringes of some of that. And I remember I would go into London a lot to go to spoken word events, poetry workshops, mixed media, arts events, things like that. And I remember going to a poetry reading slash workshop in which everyone got to share their work in Earl's Court in London at, the, at, the, at a building called the Poetry Society. So I read a poem and talked about why I liked doing what I did. And I, other people read poetry. And there was a young man there, and he read a poem and talked a bit about his interest in pop music and things like that. That was it. We all went our separate ways. About a few days later, or a week later, I and, you know, the youth of the church I was involved in, we go into the central London to this um, big event put on by Youth for Christ. It's trying to push the boundaries out a little bit. So there was some ballet dancing. I mean, these these guys that were involved in the organization, I think were at least attempting to, I and mean, I'm speaking again out of ignorance, they may have been doing it for a long time and be well-versed in all the issues and well-grounded in their practice. But to my look, I say, oh, wow, they've got actual ballet dancers here who are proficient ballet dancers and also Christians. So there, there are people working, you know, this dimly starts to occur to me. There are people working in the realm of the arts and the realm of entertainment and the realm of popular culture who are looking for ways of bringing their Christian faith to bear upon their chosen vocation. So I'm, I'm, it's a Saturday afternoon event. It's a Youth for Christ ballet dancers, singer-songwriters, and what have you. Then a young guy comes out and reads a poem. And it's the same guy that I saw at this open reading in Earl's Court. So I went up to him afterwards uh, and began to talk to him. And he was just down to London. He wanted to get he was just getting started. Either he was already well-grounded or, to, in my ignorance, I thought he was just getting started in uh, being a music journalist and getting ready to publish his first book's poems. And this is where everything gets fuzzy. I know the book he was referring to was called Tonight We Will Fake Love. And the journalism he's ended up doing went from, I think it was in, you could find it in The Melody Maker, The New Musical Express. I distinctly remember sitting down in a coffee shop near Victoria Station and reading his interview with Eric Clapton in Rolling Stone when it first came out. And this guy's name was Steve Turner. And um, I got to know him a little bit in like 69, 70, 
through that kind of encounter. And then I went to another Youth for Christ event, and this was in Torquay. I don't want to pronounce it Torquay. Torquay. I'm losing track of how to pronounce English words. We're on the coast. It's a weekend, kind of for a deeper life, think about going on mission or listen to Christian teaching. And here we have a motley crew of people all came together. To my knowledge, they may have known each other before, but for me, it was like we all met at the first time. There was a guy called um, Ian Schmael, who is now known as Ishmael. There was a guy called Andy Piercy, who formed a duo with Ishmael called Andy and Ishmael. was never your goddess she never claimed to take that role and then went on to be in a band called after the fire there were two art students named Steve up from Bristol. One was Steve Rousey and the other one was a guy called Steve Fernie. Both Rousey and Fernie ended up forming a group called Fish Company, which also morphed into other bands, which I'll get to in a minute. But this this was Fernie, the undergrad art student coming through Bristol before he moved to London and did his graduate work at the Royal College of Art. The music at this YFC weekend was a female singing trio called Soul Truth, which consisted of a a young woman named Bev Sage and Judy, and I've already forgotten her maiden last name. I know she ended up marrying Andy. And I think the third one was called Joy. Anyway, I know that Bev Sage and Steve Fernie eventually became an item. And the bands that Steve, the two Steves, which are like the Fish Company and whatever, eventually morphed into bands like Ritz and Famous Names and the Techno Twins. As well as more ed- edgier work under the name of Casualties. And so both Steve and Bev traveled on that trajectory from that time. So we've got all these people kind of like, kind of connecting over this weekend in um, Turkey in 1970. And the speakers consisted of, and I'm not going to be able to name them all, because I've forgotten all but three. I'm, I'm sure Philip Vogel was there. An Anglican named the Canon Harry Sutton was there, and he was always good, very funny. And they had a young guy who had been publishing little sidebar essays on the arts through the YFC magazine of the time. It was called that magazine was called Vista. And this young guy was uh, a young man called Nigel Goodwin. And he came and talked about the arts and culture and cultural engagement. And he too cited the Francis Schaeffer and the Hans Ruckmarkers as points of reference. So I was starting to hear this again, just as I'd heard it from some at my church, 
and now from this uh, speaker at Nigel Goodwin. I got to talk to him briefly afterwards. I think this, this was either 1970 or 1969. And he talked, Nigel, in conversation with me about the fact that there was going to be basically in his apartment or flat in Kensington with his wife, Julie, he was opening up what came to be called the Arts Center Group there in, in South Kensington, which was going to be a, a forum or a kind of a place where people in the arts, people in entertainment, theologians, thinkers, Bible scholars, whoever that was interested in trying to figure out how we should be engaging with culture or processing our own creativity, all going to come together and sit down uh, at regular meetings for for a conversation, open conversations around all these things. And so around that time, I say the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, the Arts Center Group, shepherded somewhat by Nigel Goodwin, came into being. And to those Arts Center Group meetings, you got everyone from Steve Turner, uh, Norman Stone came down from Leeds, and ended up becoming a filmmaker, working with the BBC and doing lots of other things as well. Um, Stuart Henderson, a poet. Bryn Howarth, I'm sure I just mangled his name. Slide guitarist extraordinaire. We can do all things through Christ. We can do all things. We can do all things. of people, lots of them working in lots of different media, and I barely scratched the surface in terms of names based on my own ignorance and failing memory, all coming together and dealing with, you know, either cultural engagement or stewardship of one's own creativity, and sometimes both, in ways that were Christ-honoring and Bible-based and yet culturally relevant. And it's out of, in, in my opinion, it's out of that kind of conversation at the Arts Center Group. The things that we were exploring or trying out, or I'm standing around looking at somewhat gobsmacked, I'm going, gosh, you can do that? <laughs> um, in, in the late 60s and the early 70s is what kind of trickles into the conversation you were having with John Joseph Thompson all those weeks ago. It grew much beyond the Arts Center Group in its original kind of incarnation. And, and the Arts Center Group has gone through its own cycles. It's now, in a, I'm not quite sure where it, where it is location-wise now, but they've gone through two or three buildings and grown and had influence on generations upon generations of artists, thinkers, creatives, or, or people who just want to know how to listen to and to look at the surrounding culture in a biblically intelligent way. Now, I think Art Center Group and Hans Ruckmacher and Francis Schaeffer are well aware that they're not the end of the conversation. Um, in the early 90s, there was a book put out by uh, Jeremy Begbie called Voicing Creation's Praise that did, did a sort of a qualified appreciation of the sort of the Ruckmacher... Calvin Sirvel and the other 
thinkers within sort of the reformed tradition and when it comes to engaging culture i mean begby just took the conversations a, a little bit further provided you know lots of good appreciation of the ground that was covered while at the same time bringing in a little bit of qualification and some insights as to where we should go next and what we should leave behind and begby now is uh, at duke university uh heading up um their project on arts and theology, the Duke Initiatives on Arts and Theology. He's published many books since then and um, doing uh, amazing work down there at Duke University, as is Richard Hayes, the biblical scholar that I alluded to when talking about the relationship between the Old Testament, the culture of the Old Testament and the New Testament literature. So you've got the early to mid-70s. And don't forget, I mean, uh, on one hand, You've got the alternate hippie subculture of the mid to late 1960s. And I step onto a moving conveyor belt, which is art school. By the time I get out of art school, everything is got safety pins and short hair and I hate Pink Floyd t-shirts. And, you know, so between those two watershed moments, the sort of the alternative uh, underground subculture of the, the mid 60s and the sort of the punk subculture of the mid 70s was my particular, it was an aspect of my particular formation journey. And as I've indicated, the group that John Joseph Thompson alluded to came up and out of that conversation. Well, I'll say that with qualification. One of the people that um, John alluded to is Rupert Lloydell. When I first got connected to Rupert Lloydell, he was someone who'd done everything from, he was a painter. It exhibited nationally and internationally. He got in touch with me via Steve Turner, or he was connected to, had a conversation with Steve Turner and gotten in touch with me. But Rupert ran a small press. Rupert was a published poet and ran an alternative small press that had a real robust presence in the sort of the underground alternative small press poetry scene. It was called Stride, Stride Publications. And he put out chapbooks in a magazine of experimental poetry and prose by a wide range of authors. I mean, I'm citing Rupert, not so much as like a second generation of the conversation that began in, in the 1970s, because at one point, Rupert, in his misspent youth, was roadying and carrying amps for after the fire. So <laughs> there might be like a somewhat ambient continuity in this conversation. But Rupert was, had definitely exemplified the kind of person that took that conversation between his teeth like a dog and ran with it, you know, going out there into what some would call the secular marketplace of the alternative culture of small press poetry and publishing a wide range of poets. Rupert was, in a sense, doing it. What had been theorized about, what had been explored as a possibility, was being done by people like Rupert and filmmakers like Norman Stone and through the poetry and journalism of Steve Turner. But they were like first and second generation elements of this conversation working their way out. So in 1991, I got a letter from Rupert and a selection of his books and wanting to talk to me about publishing either some poems 
or a book of art essays. And we ended up publishing a book of art essays. Oh, yeah, he, wrote, yeah no, he got to me in 1990, I think, 89 or 90. And I cobbled together this book of art essays called Crying for a Vision, which we, which he ran something like 100 copies or 200 copies of, I'm not sure. I ended up coming over to a green belt in order to uh, promote the book, give some talks and promote the book. And it was there that two people, Isaac and Maurice Slugged from the Netherlands, who had bought my Lost Horizon album on the strength of the photograph, they began to talk to me about touring the Netherlands with doing spoken word, because by now I was doing butterfly effect type things, spoken mm -hmm. word, as well as doing arts lectures. So in 93 and 96, I got to go to Holland and Belgium and places like that, working with cassette tapes of sound loops and reading poetry. So that all came about because Rupert had gotten in touch with me and Rupert had gotten in touch with me after connecting to Steve Turner. And Steve Turner I met in 69 or 70 at the beginning of my learning about Youth for Christ's engagement with the larger culture as exemplified um, and or at least as uh, as experienced when I, the evangelical church began to connect with the culture and engage with it and creativity through the agency of groups like the Arts Center Group. Another thing that came out of that, those early 1970s meetings, and this really brings out the, the sort of the Beijing subway thing again, is uh, I was going to art school in Croydon, in South London. It was as a result of going to a church for a Saturday night coffee bar concert in Purley, I saw somebody called Randy Stonehill sing some songs and it's not hard to understand why we need a father's hand. There's a rainbow somewhere. You were born to be there. You're just running in circles till you reach out your hand to the King of Hearts. And Randy, at that point, was living in a town not very far from Croydon in Carshalton. There was this, this house, the Randy Stonehill, somebody called Ed, Randy Stonehill, Ed, and occasionally this guy called Larry Norman would stay in this house in Carshalton when they were in England. One thing led to another. I got Randy Stonehill to come and play at the coffee house at the church that I was attending, which was Chrome Road Baptist, um, I'd been introduced to Randy via a mutual friend named Steve Turner. When Randy and Steve Turner were going out as uh, Randy was a singer-songwriter and Steve would read some of his poems, and I think I got them both down to this place, again in Earl's Court, where there was like a a coffee house called the Troubadour that had Monday night poetry readings that I was part of. Randy and Steve came down. I got to meet Randy for the first time 
thank you, Steve Turner, and developed a relationship with Randy, who ended up taking some of my songs and playing them for his friend, Larry Norman, which is how, when I left art school, I ended up coming to the US of A, because Larry had already begun talking to me about making a record for his record label called Solid Rock. So there's, that's another important providential strand that came out of those late 60s, early 70s encounters. Another one is that Croydon was quite close to another little town or suburb or something, West Norwood. And in West Norwood, there was a commune or a community, an intentional community of Jesus people, which the term had now been introduced to the English consciousness and vocabulary, known as the Jesus family, under the pastoral care of Jim Palisari. And I would go, I visited them several times. It's just like an intentional kind of community of people living communally, I believe, uh, and trying to live out Christian values. And they did uh, communal living, they did outreach, and they, they were music bands such as Sheep was one band that was associated with them. I visited them several times and stayed in touch. That particular strand and the arts center group strand providentially wove together around 1974. And there was this event called Green Belt, uh, the first one. And so I was at that, as was the late Steve Fernie and Bev and um, about 3,000 other people. I don't know how many people were actually there. But also it was very, there was a bigger emphasis on the bands that were associated with the Jesus family, the Sheep Band played, I think Liberation Suite played, though they were only tangentially, if at all, connected to what uh, Palisari was doing. When I found out where I was, I knew it was because I am free. By this time, in 19, the early to mid 19, well, 1973, out of that sort of that Jesus family milieu, there'd been a sort of a, a mixed media rock opera put together called Lonesome Stone that, as far as I can recall, used film, used rock music, used drama, used theater to try and tell the, the narrative of either a particular Jesus freak or a particular community of Jesus freaks, or, or to at least provide an explanation to the outside world of this Jesus freak phenomena, while, of course, presenting the heart of the Jesus freak phenomenon, which is the gospel, in culturally appropriate and relevant terms. Where do we go from here? Does it matter? So Lonesome Stone uh, hit 
in uh, Finsbury Park, London. I got to go to the premiere because at that time I was there was like Larry and Randy and those guys we were hanging out together. Went to the premiere and I'm in correspondence today. This is 2020. I'm in correspondence today with individuals who came to faith as a result of that uh, Lonesome Stone event in London in the early 1970s. I was just about to ask so, you how successful the engagement with the culture was, and that sounds like that, that was pretty successful. What's interesting, is, and it forms kind of a Mobius loop, or a ride on the Beijing subway, um, the person I'm in correspondence with who came into faith as a result of their exposure to Lonesome Stone is now finishing up their own research and I think a book-length manuscript on the impact of the Jesus movement in the United Kingdom. They've grown in the faith, uh, they've gotten some education, they've done the academic thing, they've taught biblical hermeneutics at Bible colleges and things like that. They've researched and are putting down all that they've been able to find out about the impact of the Jesus movement on the UK. The storm was coming, the sky was on fire. the late 1960s, the idea then, or the stereotypical idea that you tended to encounter, if we make art as a believer, how in fact is it going to evangelize? You know, what's its purpose? And the purpose being, you know, within a very narrow spectrum of bringing a certain kind of Christian message to bear upon the larger community. And or you look at popular culture and you look at the drug culture and you look at all the alternative culture that was going on and it was kind of, well, you don't want to be drawn into that. You don't want to be part of that. You've converted away, as it were, from you know getting sucked into that kind of lifestyle. Um, so there was those kinds of tensions at one level. There was my own thinking. I think, okay, I'm picking up the idea that art if it's going to serve any purpose within the church, has to be front and center with some sort of proclamation. And there was a whole move in England. There was a, there was a cultural phenomenon in England. They talk about Jesus rock and music mm-hmm. like that over here in America. There was a whole phenomenon in England, this was the Christian beat group during the 1960s, from the early 1960s on, where there was these kind of electric quintets and quartets playing what they felt was like contemporary sounding music, usually with very explicit Christian content type lyrics grafted on. So there was that whole phenomenon going on. And and also folk singers and singer-songwriter phenomena had its kind of Christian equivalents emerging in the late 1960s, early 1970s, very early Graham Kendrick, who ended up becoming more well-known, I think, for his involvement in, in the worship movement. I remember going to a Graham Kendrick concert in the early 1970s at the Royal Albert Hall, and his first 
one or two albums or three albums or however many were very much oriented along the sort of the singer-songwriter. With the dusk in his hair and the world yet to see The travelling man he walks slower than me He buttons his collar and laughs at the rain And finds him a highway to travel again As was Malcolm and Alwyn, uh, who did an album called Fool's Wisdom, and they ended up, I think, becoming, uh, touring over here. Malcolm Wilde is now a Calvary Chapel pastor somewhere, I think in Florida. And Alwyn Wall went on to form an electric band called the Alwyn Wall Band. They toured America under the auspices of the record label that brought them over. So there were these things bubbling up. There was this kind of this this kind of e- emerging dialogue from different points of view. There was the the one I was kind of immersed into, where it was kind of like, well, you're a Christian now. Um, what you do, what you're about, explicit evangelism, leading people to the Lord, and art. If you're going to make art, then you you've got to think through the role the arts play in carrying propositional content or a verbal message or attracts people to ask questions uh, about your faith. Or there was this other emerging conversation around the uh, sort of the writings of Hans Ruckmacher and and, uh, Francis Schaeffer that that says, A, we are to try and do a better read of the worldview of the larger culture. We just can't write them off in black and white terms. We have to take a more nuanced approach to understanding the cultural, the social and the cultural dynamic. Coupled with, uh, art has a broader agenda within the church, including not merely being the hobby horse for a sort of a propositional or a, a statement of faith, usually expressed in language that has absolutely no traction in the real world because it draws upon a metaphor bank from, you know, the last time Christianity or Christendom was in some kind of ascendancy. So asking people if they've been washed in the blood or whatever was not really going to cut through or asking them if they had Jesus in their heart or all, all those kind of very vertical metaphors for the Christian experience or the Christian encounter didn't really have sufficient real world analogs for the communication to actually communicate with uh, the, the larger community. And, and as, I'm, as I'm saying, I'm just wandered off, and as I'm saying, the, the kind of the conversation that was coming out of the art center group and Hans Ruckmacher and, and the thinkers and the writers that were looking into creating a more, there was a more biblical and a more grounded response to the larger culture, stressed, you know, what good art can do in terms of being salt and light and what bad art dressed up with in Christianese, what kind of bridges that that burned in terms of actually engaging the larger culture. So those two conversations, and they sound like they're in opposition, but in fact, they kind of synthesized and moved on. So that was those were informing my kind of thinking. They were, in terms of my experience, I was trying to grow as a Christian artist and someone who tried to think like a Christian 
through those things. Uh, I've got written down here a description of four overlapping circles. Uh, and in my experience, one would be my church experience. And my church experience is, you know, where I came to faith and grew uh, by fits and starts in that faith. And also from that church experience, got exposed to parachurch organizations like Operation Mobilization. And I ended up doing um, a summer in France with Operation Mobilization in the early 1970s. And then an Easter in France, in Paris in 1973 with Operation Mobilization. So what I experienced in my church and what I experienced through Operation Mobilization and other organizations and reading their literature and reading the the kind of the growth material uh, either associated with the parachurch organizations like OM or growth material associated with the deeper life in church and in my own Christian experience, that was one kind of circle and it overlapped with all the other circles. The other, another circle would be the exposure that I was getting to the larger world of Christian thinking about cultural engagement that was coming through uh, the Art Center group, Nigel Goodwin, Hans Ruckmacher, Francis Schaeffer and all that, which to be fair, I got my first exposure to through other members in my church. Another circle would be actually going to like real art school, which is what I was doing. So I was juggling those two circles. Then I was going to real art school and see being exposed to art, anti-art, fluxus, conceptual art, mixed media art, poetry, experimental film, and trying to witness verbally very much in that. So that first circle where you're, you know, you're talking to people about developing a personal relationship with Jesus, and also trying to think about what I was learning from my exposure to the larger conversation through the Arts Center group, Francis Schaeffer, Hans Rupert, and seeing where it got the larger culture right, and where it still kind of missed the boat a little bit in terms of its diagnostic, trying to think to myself, okay, how am I going to make art, write poetry, make experimental films or whatever in a culture which is shifting from the modernity, which is being diagnosed to death by the Christian thinkers into the post-modernity that I see exploding all around me. The idea of arguing about things propositionally was viewed by some as a capitulation to thinking methods that had their own inherent biases. I was being called to step back and deconstruct even those methods. And all these circuits were starting to overlap and they overlapped in two two ways I'd like to describe real briefly. One is, I've mentioned the organization, Operation Mobilization, great operation forth. When I went to Paris in 1973, and when I was writing something in the mid-90s on postmodernism, I reflected back on my experience in Paris in 1973, in which our outreach team were giving out tracts, religious tracts, and putting up posters for meetings that carried the one-way sign that's uh, associated with and popularized by Larry Norman. And 
So we were handing that out, inviting people to evangelistic meetings. One of the afternoons, like an afternoon we weren't, we were taking some time out. We all, we went to the museum where they have the, the Louvre, where they have the Mona Lisa. And we saw that, and we saw the crowds around the Mona Lisa. And then coming back over the River Seine and walking down some of the side streets in Paris, I went by a record store and the David Bowie album, uh, Aladdin Sane, had just been released. So I began to think about the those three images, the the French version of the one-way sign, tracked, the Mona Lisa, which is great art according to the institutions, and David Bowie's new album with his um, lightning zag across his face. And I thought, now the postmodernists would like step outside of all that and view those each each of those signs as having equal signification. If the foundations of our thinking are now currently being uh, deconstructed, and we're in a kind of a sort of a free-floating environment, then a one-way sign, a David Bowie album, and the Mona Lisa uh, vie for airspace in this this new world of kind of floating uh, signs. And so, and that fed into whatever it was I wrote in the mid-90s about postmodernism. Now I hear you Everywhere I go There's music in your name I think in terms of my um, personal experience with the work that I've made uh, or the work that I've encountered by other people that um, has impacted me, the art is simply part of a larger conversation. We make an object or we write a song or we write a poem or we write a book or paint something and it's, it's simply part of a much larger, larger conversation involving people that come and listen or look and to take in uh, what you're you're doing. And I think the idea is, is to make the work as best you can, but then be available to the conversations that will emerge around the work. It would be fine to approach the work praying, saying, dear God, I'm going to do the best that I can do. Please Please, in your, your infinite wisdom, your grace, or your infinite sense of humor, please make this part of a larger conversation. And then go about doing a very good painting, or making a film, or write a poem. Because of the work I've been exposed to, there's always been a sense of someone's worldview, or personal philosophy, or faith tradition, or position, always somehow leaks through what they do, I will say whether or not they consciously intended to, but of course at one level they do, but at another level they don't rush at it front and center. So the work that speaks to me, whether it be a you know a painting, uh, a dance, or a rock song or whatever, something of the creator's worldview comes through almost in spite of what's on the surface of the work. So the work holds together in terms of the value system of the larger culture. It's a good pop song, it's a great painting, it's good theater or whatever, but something comes through which 
kind of prods me and makes me ask a question about what did the person putting this together? What do they value? And what do they believe? Let me give you an example. In 19, the late 1960s, uh, I'd be in Britain and I was watching a TV show put on by a British folk singer called Julie Felix. She was a popular British folk singer and she'd bring on, she'd play songs, it'd be like voice and guitar and that kind of thing. She'd bring on guests. She had two guests come on. The first guest that she had come on that made a profound impression on me was a Canadian poet and singer-songwriter called Leonard Cohen. And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind, you find he did not leave you very much, not even laughter. Like any dealer, he was watching for the card that is so high and wild, he'll never need to deal another. Then his album came out some weeks later, and the rest is history. I was really impressed by him. He's really good. I liked him a lot. I liked all his work and all that stuff. The other guest that really impressed me and pushed me in the way I was talking about previously was a singer-songwriter called David Ackles. David Ackles played two songs. One was called Down River, and the other was called, I believe, I believe he featured it on this show. His name is Andrew. Gordon's dead. Gordon's dead. You look at the lyrics, it's very much about someone having a religious faith and losing it. Down River was written from the perspective of an incarcerated felon corresponding with his former love who's got up and moved on. And the insights and the humanity and the, the, the way that in Ackles' lyrics and the music made me ask myself, what does this guy believe? And lo and behold, much later, I found out that David Ackles was a Christian in the, in the Presbyterian tradition. And I was, I was greatly impressed by that. I was greatly impressed that he was making his way in the larger culture, bringing a Christian perspective to bear upon the stories he told in his very good songs. Three years, that ain't long, Rosie. I still remember our song. This conversation is not over. We will pick it back up in a few episodes. And when we do so, Mr. Scott will talk about his move to California and the beginnings of his own musical career. If you're still wanting to hear more of Mr. Steve Scott, give In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 226 a listen, where he discusses the message and example set by the Gospel of John. And if your interests lie in the dissection of art, you should certainly give Episodes 189 and 209 a listen, those featuring an in-depth talk with Professor Ricardo Paujosa, not only an art collector and critic, but a poet in addition. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.
Just a line, baby. 